Hi, and welcome back to Politodoxy. I'm your host, Aaron Friedman. Today, we have a special guest. We have Lottie Dupree, also uh, known as Ayala Eisenberg, who is a pro-life activist. And today we will be discussing, as we have discussed many times over, the pro-life cause. And as far as I understand it, you are not a conservative, but you are, as uh, as far as I understand, you are more of a moderate and You've taken you've taken uh, the pro-life mantle very uh, you've taken that up and you've been very vocal, especially on certain certain pro-lifers, uh, which, by the way, I find them also co- quite comical why they would consider themselves pro-lifers. They're kind of they're being very obnoxious, especially pretty vulgar some, from time to time. We both know what uh, what we're talking about here. So. When we we will get to that, but first I want you to introduce yourself on your own terms, and we will continue on from there. Perfect. So uh, thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, I am a physics student um, in my daytime work, and I've been studying for that for um, a few years now. And of course, I've been a pro-life activist for a couple years. So um, I've worked with Students for Life, Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, and more recently, I represented the Jewish Pro-Life Foundation at the Southern California Pro-Life Alliance Summit. Um, so I'm definitely branching out more, especially to address the Jewish community um, on abortion. That's one of the reasons I really wanted to be on your show. So thank you so much for giving me that opportunity. And well, again, as I said, it's very great to have you here. And also, I also forgot to mention, we also discussed this on the subject of Israel. So we will have two discussions for today. All right. So you've taken on the pro-life mantle. And where, when did the, your pro-life stance start? Right. So um, I talk about this pretty frequently um, about my pro-life story. Um, I've been featured in several publications and debates talking about it. Um, But essentially, when I was 15 years old, I got pregnant from sexual assault. I was sexually assaulted for about four years. um, And it was a very harrowing, traumatic experience. Um, And, you know, when I got pregnant from sexual assault, I was very worried. I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, no 15 year old is expecting or, you know, understands what to do when they become pregnant. So when that happened, I was very distraught and um, I started looking for resources. I found some pro-life resources in my community. You know, I started to think maybe I could have this baby and it um, empowered me to know that, you know, not only did I have the choice whether or not to um, protect my daughter's life and to have a baby. And that was, you know, something I was given jurisdiction over, but also that I was growing a life inside of me. And that made me feel very powerful at a time where I felt like I didn't have any say over anything. Um, And so it was really a source of hope and of healing for me to know that I was pregnant with my baby, um, despite what other people might assume I was feeling. Um, And then eventually I did end up miscarrying my baby. I named her Rahail. um, And it was very traumatic, very uh, difficult for me to go through that. Um, And through that process, I kind of discerned that, you know, what was traumatic for me in that instance was my assault. Um, What was traumatic was you know, the situation I was in, but my baby wasn't traumatic for me. And when I lost her, you know, that was traumatic. Um, And so it's kind of given me a very specific and special lens into um, kind of the situation that a lot of these women find themselves in. Um, And so I felt I was able to talk to them more directly um, from a place of understanding that a lot of pro-life activists simply aren't able to um, relate to. So I started doing my pro-life work um, not too long after that, maybe about a year after that. And from there, it's just been activism, protests, you know, all sorts of things to save babies like my daughter. Well, that is a very important thing to be doing, especially somebody of your caliber taking on this um, ter- um, this terrible thing that has happened to you. That is a, I would say most people who are, who would come under such a terrible situation, they would either feel very resentful or 
they would at the very least try to withdraw themselves from the debate. So what drives you to be so vocal on this part? Now you've explained a little bit on that subject, but I want to I want to drive this more. What gives you the how about this? What fuels you and doesn't take away from from because people take a toll when after some time, especially when we have certain pro-lifers, again, I don't know what is going on in their head when they post uh, vulgarity. Uh, I think they're trying to they're trying to appeal to a demographic group that is also vulgar, but I'm like these these people who are as vulgar as you're trying as you're appealing to, I don't think they're going to be pro-life, so I don't know. You're not appealing to anybody who is going to change their mind. And the the sheer fact that you are doing it, that in uh, of itself is a complete joke. So when you see that, and you admit it much, that it really take you take a toll on that. So what fuels you on that part? And how do you how do you deal with the emotional distress that comes with it? Absolutely. I've had so many issues during my pro-life activism with fellow activists, with just the toll that fighting something like an active um, mass slaughter of innocent children, like it takes a toll on you. Um, and, you know, the only thing that really keeps me going is the knowledge that I have and I've confirmed that I have saved babies from abortion and I've saved women from the trauma of abortion. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, as someone who's been violently victimized, I don't want anyone else to feel the way that I felt when I was sexually assaulted. And moreover, I don't want any other woman to feel the way that I had to feel when I lost my baby. And, you know, even though I didn't have an abortion procedure, especially with things like the abortion pill um, and the physical process of how it's similar to a miscarriage, I would assume that it's probably a very similar feeling of loss and of grief and of deep regret. And from what I've heard from other post-aborted women, like that seems to be the situation. Um, and I just... I, I want there to be less of that pain and trauma in the world. And if I can help contribute to that, that is a great motivator. All right. So on the second hand, what do you, how do you deal with the distress that comes with, especially on the attacks? We've seen them uh, attack your, um, our position. As a matter of fact, I'm pro-life as well. Everybody knows this by now, but they've been attacking the pro-life position. And how do you, how do you deal with that distress? Um, I think mostly I rely on God. Um, I rely on prayer. I think that God is probably one of the few things that's really keeping me sane right now, especially, you know, with everything that's happening with Israel. Um, but um, prayer, I rely on those around me. Um, and most importantly, I rely on the knowledge that what I'm doing is important work um, and it is saving lives. Well, I'll give you another thing that you could consider every time you feel down, you feel that life is hopeless. Just remember this one thing. We never would have thought in our lifetime that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, right? We Nobody thought of it. It happened. And every time I feel that things might are hopeless, I just remember that the impossible is possible. It just ha it happened. It's possible. So it's it's not much when you are, when a person is in such a terrible situation that this, it might seem small, but it's something and it can't be thrown out the window as as nothing it has to be considered that it happened we thought it would never happen the impossible might be possible and it's something to consider so you touched on the subject of god where does your jewish identity uh knit itself into the conversation that's a great question so when i first started pro-life activism and i talked about this a little more publicly um recently with the Israel situation. Um, but when I began pro-life activism, I had actually converted to Christianity. I was looking into becoming Catholic. 
Um, and I, you know, slowly realized that the people around me uh, hated me for being Jewish. Um, and unfortunately, that's a very ugly uh, part of the conservative Catholic community. And it, it is real and it does exist. Um, and I recognized that, you know, I didn't believe in anything that I thought I had believed in. Um, and what's more, I hated myself for being Jewish because of the community that I had been a part of. And so I started to investigate my Jewish identity. Um, I started to learn more about Judaism, about how I, you know, fit into the Jewish community. Um, and, you know, through rediscovering all of those things through, um, beginning to practice reform Judaism, um, I found a home. I found a community that was deeply meaningful to me. It was not, you know, um, surface level, like a lot of, I felt the Catholics had been with me. Um, and as I started to learn more about Judaism, I recognized, you know, that Judaism is incredibly pro-life. If you, if you look at what, um, our various rabbis and teachers have said about abortion, about the violence of abortion, even in the last a hundred years, um, and, and what God has to say about Judaism and, and about <laughs> abortion and Judaism in the Torah, um, it's very clearly, um, we're not allowed to take innocent life, especially not the innocent life of a child um, that we have grown and that we are we are trusted by God to protect. Um, and so I think, you know, one of my most important parts of my work now is clarifying to people that um, Judaism is not this pro-abortion um, child sacrifice religion that it's been portrayed as in the media, which I frankly think is blood libel, um, simply put. And um, yeah, I want people to know that Judaism is pro-life and that's a, as a big uh, part of how I'm able to keep going is knowing that um, I am doing God's will, um, I hope, <laughs> with a lot of the work that I've done. I'm going to touch on the Judaism part and discuss on that uh, in just in a moment. I just want to uh, push on this subject. Um, you said that the pro-life Catholics or the conservative Catholics, let's just put it that way, they were uh, very, uh, you, would, you use the word anti-Semitic. So what was... Uh, can you get, give us any examples of what was what that uh, entails? Right. So um, from the time that I was about uh, the end of my 15th year, around when I was 16, um, I started looking into Catholicism and I joined um, an in-person Catholic community and an online one um, around Twitter. And I had people constantly harassing me for being Jewish, saying that I was attempting to subvert Catholicism and subvert their church um, by asking questions about their treatment of women, about their treatment of Jews and all those sorts of things and about their history of like oppressing Jewish people um, very poorly. And um, as I asked those questions and as all I got back as a response was um, vileness and hatred, I started to, you know, focus on that history a little bit more. And it just, it was kind of a cycle of, I would ask a question about that, or I would talk to people about that. And um, I would say the Catholic Church, you know, needs to apologize, apologize for what they've done um, to the Jewish people. I would I would get that kind of hate and feedback. And then eventually it kind of escalated to the point where I got doxxed by um, Catholics who were affiliated with a neo-Nazi um, terrorist organization. And I'm not going to say which one, but people who are aware of the situation know which one. And I had to file a police report. And that was kind of a wake up call um, to know that, like, a lot of the people who were around me who like tolerated me as a good Jew um, were willing to throw me under the bus and were willing to say and do awful things if I slipped up if I um, was acting too Jewish um, if I you know wasn't abiding by their rules um, honestly it, it was and I hate to use this word I don't use this word lightly it was really traumatic for me and it has been difficult for me to work with Catholic organizations today that clearly don't respect my Judaism. Well, and to your defense on using the word traumatic, I mean, if I were dogs by a Nazi organization, I mean, I would, I mean, 
I guess I would be uh, maybe at the very least I'd be concerned. So I mean, I guess that I mean there, I don't see why you would have to defend yourself on that front on saying that it was traumatic. I mean, probably would be. So let's now uh, let's switch it up back to the, uh, as we started. To, sorry, as we were talking earlier on the God and on the issue of uh, being Jewish and being pro-life. I've seen, and this is so stupid, AOC talk for Jews. Apparently she has decided, she has decided that she's Sephardi, which I have no clue where she takes that from. I doubt it. I highly doubt it. And if she is indeed Sephardi, then I would have to say, well, I mean, most Sephardi Jews won't. They, they will be like, nah, you're not. No, please. Please don't talk for us. We have our own people who can talk for ourselves. As far as I know, she's not Sephardi. She's, how about this? She's as much Sephardi as Elizabeth Warren is Native American. <laughs> so I, I wanted to touch on this because she said that, what about Jewish people? Our Jewish brothers and sisters who, are, who need to have abortions and they, have, they are taking away their rights. And my first thought was, first above all else, there is no Jewish right for an abortion. There's no sacrament for an abortion what are you talking about? That's satanic. That is not J Jewish in the least. What do you mean? Our Jewish brothers and sisters, at the very least, what you would be able to say, if you want to obscure and ignore all the teachings of the Torah, all the teachings of the Talmud, every single Jewish book, if you want to ignore all of that, you could at the very least say that it's permissible. There is, But there is no commandment. Where did you take this? What about the commandment? There is literally no commandment for that. What are you talking about? So at the very least, if you want to ignore everything, everything that makes Jewish uh, Judaism Judaism, then at the very least you would be able to say, well, it's permitted. And you'd be wrong on that as well. But on that front, I would like to get your uh, your opinion on this. What, what do you think about when you have people such as AOC first has to claim that they're Jewish and then start speaking for Jews and say that, well, it's, it is a Jewish, a very important Jewish right or something like that. I think that's a really good question. Um, first and foremost, I think that I've seen a lot of people speaking for the Jewish community, um, not only when they have no authority to, but when they know that what they're saying is not representative of a vast majority of Jewish opinion. Um, and of course, you can say that like American Jews by and large, by and large excuse me, are pro-choice, but you know, the Jewish population in of itself is not just American Jews. Um, and I think that especially if you talk to Israeli Jews, that's clearly not the case. But even if it was the majority of Jews' opinion um, that abortion should be permitted in this case or you know um up until this age of gestation like let's look at what our what our what our god says what our Torah says what our holy books say and unequivocally judaism only supports abortion in one instance and that is if a woman is going to die without one and i'm not a rabbi i'm obviously not a religious scholar of any sort but you know it does not take you to be a rabbi or religious scholar um to know that that's what judaism says about it it's very cut and dry and if you ask any orthodox rabbi if you look at what like the most prolific rabbis of the last century have had to say about abortion they say it's child murder and i think that saying that what jews are saying is child murder is not only permissible in judaism but a right and something that we are ordered to carry out is nothing but blood libel i mean i think that these people are using jews as a scapegoat to write on and say that you know this is this is the jews religion so we can't mess with the jews because they love killing babies how can you read that as anything but blatant anti-semitism that's that's all that i'm hearing right now and i think exactly. that the has anything to say about Judaism and abortion, maybe she should try, like, I don't know, talking to a single rabbi or actual Jew who is not 
her grandmother or grandfather, whoever said she was Jewish, she was clearly not. Like, you don't just get to decide what Jews believe about abortion. Why don't you try asking an actual Jew? Exactly. And I will add some context to what you said about only in the life of the mother. Now we have to make this very clear. There is a Talmud, I'm trying to remember which one, but there is a Talmud story that talks about the laws on how one is to conduct oneself in such cases. And it discusses that there was a pregnant woman, if, sorry, if there is a pregnant woman that walks by a bakery and the bakery has a guard dog and the guard dog starts growling and the woman is scared to, so much that it causes a miscarriage, the baker's the owner of the bakery has to pay the woman, has to compensate the woman. That is how pro-life is uh, the um, Judaism is. That not even that it, it was, it's not even a mistake. It's something that's beyond the baker's control. It's the dog. The dog has a mind of its own. It's not even a mistake. It's something that's beyond their control. You are still liable to compensate the woman. Now we understand you didn't kill the child on purpose. So we don't, we're not going to punish you, but you have to compensate because now you've done this woman because of your um, dog and you are responsible for the dog. Your dog has caused the woman to lose a child. Now you have to compensate. You have to pay up. That is how pro-life is uh, the Talmud and Judaism is. And I want to add another uh, more context to what you said on pro-life uh, on the mother, if the life of the mother is in danger. Why does Judaism say that it's a commandment? It's not only just if the life of the mother you can choose. No, you have to choose the life of the mother. Why is that? Why not choose the child? Why not make it a choice? Specifically because Judaism understands, the Talmud understands, and our sages understood that if you're going to give the people the right, uh, the so-called right or responsibility of deciding which per, um, which person to, to save, the child or the mother, at the regardless of who you try to save, you're going to feel guilty for the rest of your life. Maybe you should have done the opposite. Maybe it. Maybe you should have done this way. Maybe of that way. So the Talmud tells you this is how it's supposed to be. So now the responsibility is not in your hands. You you know what you have to do. So now the person, regardless of the outcome, the person. The person who's making the choice, so-called choice, is actually who's committing the deed. Now, that person doesn't have to feel guilty. That person can now have a normal life knowing that this that he did or she did exactly what had to be done. It was not their choice. And that's a very important part because if you're not going, if you're going to give the uh, give them the responsibility, their life could be ruined. They will constantly for the rest of their lives be stuck in the past, stay and um, just thinking thinking over and over, maybe it should have gone this way. Maybe we could have done that. Maybe this or that. No, this is what you got to do because this is the right thing. Taking it out of the, taking away the responsibility just so people could live. That's just a little bit more context. And by the way, this is, this is not, this is my own take on it. So on the, on the part of specifically to, to make it easier to live a normal life. This is just, this is my own opinion. This is not um, any rabbinical or any study. This is just common sense using it because it just makes sense to tell people, this is what you have to do because otherwise you're going to be stuck in the past forever. So I was interested in getting your opinion on tactics because we see the pro-life going out there debating certain weird people. A lot of them, I mean, I, I'm not sure if you've seen this. This black woman put herself, uh, I, don't, I think it was powder or something, just to act as if it's white face. A black woman putting on white face and held baby doll heads and started ripping them apart and, and shouting, I think it was kill the babies, kill the babies. Super, super weird. And there were certain people who were trying to debate her. And I was like, why, why, why even bother? 
I mean, no good could come out of this. Everybody understands that, that they're crazy. So why try to debate the people, specifically these kinds of people? We're not talking about your friends and family. I always say this. When it comes to the Democratic apparatus, never, ever take them seriously. And same with the Republican apparatus. Don't take them seriously. They're here, they're here for the money. They're here for themselves to make themselves enrich their lives and not work with you. Don't take them seriously. But when you're talking with your Democratic neighbors, friends, or even Republic pro-choice Republicans, which apparently they exist, weird, but they do. So when you're dealing with them, of course, you could you should be debating them. So I would like to get your point, on, uh, your opinion on this. Do you think that it is helpful to debate the um, people who are completely unreasonable, or do you think that it might there is some kind of benefit to it? Right. That's a good question. So um, a lot of and, you know, you'll discern this as you become more skilled as a debater, not you, but just one will discern this. Um, and I, I've had to figure this out over several years. Um, there are some people who are performing in order to get attention um, or to be so unreasonable. It's interesting to the media, I guess you could say. Um, and, and that, you know, is actually a tactic in activism. Uh, I've done things with progressive anti-abortion uprising that were less about, you know, having a discussion about abortion and more about getting media attention, which is a legitimate use of the media and of activism. But, you know, obviously, if someone is acting in that way for attention, they're intentionally being unreasonable. They're not someone that you're going to be able to have a productive discussion with. Um, but there are people who may be saying unreasonable things that you can't have a productive discussion with. And I think it kind of you have to discern whether or not they're doing it for attention um, and they're kind of grifting or if they genuinely believe what they're saying. Um, I think that that woman, for example, was probably doing that knowing she's being completely deliriously unreasonable. She's probably doing it to get attention, to get media attention um, on the issue. And she can do that very easily by acting in an unreasonable way, um, very publicly. Um, but I, I would say that's, that's not someone who you can really have a, a conversation, a dialogue with, because she's clearly not looking to have a conversation. Um, she clearly believes what she believes. Um, and, and she just wants to be unreasonable because of that um, to get attention to that issue. And that's, you know, her business. But I would say that, you know, uh, most of the time, the people you're going to be able to have productive discussions with are going to be people that you know personally and people on the Internet as well. Um, but not really like people who are pulling like a political stunt in that manner. I don't think that that would be someone worth having a conversation with because, you know, clearly they already they're going to be like, talking to a brick wall. <laughs> on the now let's continue on the tactics part. This is a something that certain people might find very um, disturbing or they might say that, well, that's not nice. We shouldn't be doing it this way because we are the good guys. We should be doing this. But again, I'm a very uh, I'm a Machiavellian when it comes to politics. I say do things that are expedient to you. And it's always good to have ideals. It's good to have principles and morals and all that. But there's another there is a rule that I've adapted. It's called it's that rules are meant to be broken. And sometimes you have to break or bend very, at the very least bend, not all rules. And it depends. You got to have a moral compass. We understand this. So don't take that with out of context. We understand that there has to be a moral compass, but sometimes you have to do the expedient thing in order to move forward because the absolutists have one the absolutists who die on the hill and they don't actually win anything. We, I mean, they haven't, the, the nice guys haven't won us anything. They, it only works by being Machiavellian, getting the things done. Sometimes you 
don't you don't follow the principle completely but it is it's basically it's a way i would guess you would you could characterize it as the ends justify the means i guess you could characterize it that depending what the means is depending on what the ends are but it's all within context okay so now we got that out of, out of the way this is what i'm proposing that we have the people who have been affected by abortions the children or maybe not children but yeah, actually, they've been affected as children, but now adults. Get them on the state houses. That is up for the state Republicans, the Republican legislatures within each state, and also in the federal government. The House and the Senate. Get the people who are affected by abortion, and specifically the ones who have visible scars. Visibly, you can see that these people have been mutilated. Get them up there on the floor. And let them ask the question from the senators and congressmen who are calling for we need we need to protect the they characterize it under women's rights abortion we need to protect abortion make them ask the question do you think that I should be dead right now do you think that why do you want me to be dead I don't I have a right to life it'll be one hell of a picture it'll be absolutely amazing to see the Democratic and also so-called Republican senators or congressmen who are pro-choice have to answer. Yeah, I do think you should be dead right now. There is no good answer to this. And why am I saying that this is, first of all, this should be done, or this is something that would be a terrible, people could, can, could think that this is a terrible thing to do. Because you'd think that we're taking advantage of them. We're taking, yeah, the pro-lifers are now taking these people and taking advantage of them. No, this is, this is not what it, it is about. It's about, first of all, saving babies' lives. That's number one. But number two, these people, I'm pretty sure that these people would want to be able to talk on their own behalf and be able to defend themselves. The, these people have been maligned. They've been attacked. They are they are ignored completely by the media that these people don't exist. They should be given a voice. They should be heard. They should be brought up. And this is all their choice. If they don't want to, anybody who doesn't want to, well, you don't have to. But whoever wants to, bring them on the House, bring them on the Senate floor, and make them ask the questions. And it'll switch. It'll change everybody's mind. Why? Because... Most of the pro-choice movement, the ones who are scared, they are pro-choice mostly because they are not, they don't have to suffer the consequences of their own actions. Uh, a lot of them are like, yeah, I'm never going to do I have an abortion, but I want other people who want to do it, they should be able to. Okay, so this is the end result. This is what happens. They have to be confronted. So what do you think on that subject? On getting people, the right people, to be confronted? And bringing the people who have been affected the most by abortions to talk on those on that on that subject. Give the people who have been affected the most. It's weird. Everybody has an opinion on everything, and everybody says uh, bring black people to talk about black issues, Hispanic people about Hispanic issues, Jews about Jewish issues, issues, and so on. How about having people who have been affected by abortion to talk about the issue of abortion? I think you're absolutely right. I think that one thing that I'm really exhausted with about the abortion conversation is any illusion that we have to follow respectability politics in regards to abortion. Because abortion is literally murder. Abortion is literally an act of genocide that's completely legal happening in the United States right now. I am not playing this game of, am I being nice enough when I'm talking about mass murder that is completely legal? And, you know, I, I even go so far as to a very uh, civil disobedience and peaceful resistance against abortion um, and stuff like rescue. So I, I have absolutely no problem with getting up in these politicians' faces who are enabling the murder of these children and asking them, you know, do you think that I should be dead in terms of these people who have survived abortion attempts? Absolutely. Well, as well, by the way, I take also very much offense to the 
viability. That's one that really gets me because I would not have been viable outside the womb. That's let's just put it that way. I'm not going to discuss exactly what was the problem, but I would not have been. So whenever you say that viability is, is a factor, no, it's not a factor. It's a life and we should do whatever we can to save that life. And I'm not even talking, I'm not even talking about the people who, the, the argument about viability. Okay. So that goes to a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12, I continue on maybe up until even 15 who can, they cannot, they, most of them, especially nowadays, maybe, maybe in the past or in Africa where it's much more harder, the life dealt is much more harder. So they have to adapt much more quicker, but in the West, I do not think that a 15-year-old, if not given the proper equipment or knowledge, would be able to survive outside uh, outside of a house without any without any help from a parent. Uh, maybe sir, you could point to certain that, uh, people that would, but the by that logic, all of them are unviable because they cannot take care of themselves, and that include and that goes also to the to dementia-ridden Joe Biden. I mean, he's not viable as well. Am I allowed to kill him? No, obviously not. So. This this goes to this goes to show on the viability option. Uh, sorry, not option. The viability subject. It really really angers me when people bring that up as a thing. Viability. So I guess what they mean by viability is that it's not a life because it's not viable. It's not really a life, which goes then which I referred to to my previous argument on a six year old, not viable. I mean, could live about for three days, but they won't be able to find food. They won't at certain point. They're not viable on their own. Anyway. So on this, let's continue on tactics. The subject of getting pushing it in people's faces, showing them. I've seen the pro-life movement do that, and I'm glad they did with the photos of the children who were mutilated, the babies, the aborted fetuses on social media. Now that is something that they have been doing. So I will give credit to where credit is due. They've been pushing that and that is very good. And I think the more people who see it, the more they start to understand, wait a minute, this is actual human being. This is, this is, I can, I can literally hold this in my hand. This is a real human being. This is not just a clump of cells. So I'm very glad that, that we're actually pushing that out. Certain people might consider that, oh my, you're being very, very uh, vulgar. It's it's terrible images. We shouldn't be looking at that. Oh, wait, why are you so offended by those images? Could it be because you do understand that this is a human life? Otherwise, you wouldn't be offended. You'll just ignore it. You'll just say, well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you, so you are offended. So it goes to show that deep inside, you do know that it is a life. Furthermore, I'll, go, I'll even go a step further on people who shame other people or may shame you for being why are you so militant about this why are you pushing these images and why do you want to bring up people on the house floor yes and they they say we have to be civil yes right because abortion is a very civilized thing it's very civilized so do you think that we need to be more on that front be more militant not only on we as we discussed just a moment ago on bringing these people the people who have been affected by abortion onto the floor, but also on social media, being more militant on that front without any shame, without any without anything being afraid or we're losing anybody. Because I feel like we're actually winning. If we are showing the photos of aborted fetuses, the actual, the showing that this is real, this is an actual child, I think we're winning. Certain people might think we're losing. What do you think? I think it's a really great question. Um, I struggled for a while with whether or not to use victim imagery, and it is a big conversation with the uh, pro-life movement. Um, I think when I started working with POW, 
Um, obviously, I had to grapple with my own feelings about seeing um, dead babies. I have given birth to two dead babies. It's very um, re-traumatizing. But also, um, we use victim imagery for every other um, violent event. We use victim imagery, um, obviously, for things like the Holocaust, um, the genocide in uh, Myanmar, um, Rohingya genocide, um, any, any atrocity that we're trying to make people understand the scope of. We show them pictures of the dead bodies because that's really the only way to fully to make people fully grasp um, the the weight of what's happened. You have to show people the carnage. Um, and as terrible as that sounds, like they're visual creatures, that's the only way they're going to understand. Um, and I and I do think that you know it is upsetting. Obviously, that's the whole point. We understand that it's upsetting. We understand it may be re-traumatizing. But the fact of the matter is that our feelings are not as important as trying to liberate these children from being actively murdered. Um, and I think that if showing people those gruesome photos will save one child, it's completely worth it um, to hurt people's feelings. And, you know, it might sound brutal, and I think there is a way to do it while trying to um, be conscious of where we're using those images. I would never use those images, for example, outside of an abortion clinic. Not only is it statistically ineffective to do that outside of an abortion clinic, but it's also, you know, very clearly traumatizing and upsetting to this woman. But at a protest, when you're protesting, when you're going into um, the House of Representatives um, to talk about these issues, um, as I believe Representative uh, Anna Polina did, and she showed pictures of the um, five babies who were murdered outside of Sant'Angelo's um, clinic in D.C., that's really important because we're having these active conversations with political leaders, with activists. They need to be seeing these photos. They need to have to answer for these photos because ultimately what they're doing, like they're responsible for these photos. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. So, but what would you answer to the women who are scared? Because it's easy for the pro-life movement and I've seen certain people, not all of them to the pro-life movement's credit, but certain people who are a little let's just use the word insensitive towards mothers who are afraid because it's very easy to say, well, they're all Satanists, which by the way, a large percentage of them are a lot. I mean, I have to admit there, there are a lot of, lot of weirdos, but we are conveniently forgetting about the women who are being taken advantage of not only by the pro-abortion movement, but also by the abortionists, the ones committing the abortion the so-called doctors, I don't call them doctors, I call them Mangala doctors because of doctor so-called Dr. Mangala who killed right. and did trans surgeries. This is something that most people don't know. He did he did try to attach switch up genitals from women from girls to boys. And these were children, these weren't um adults, as far as I know. These were children he was doing these experiments. Anyway, we're getting off track. Back to the main subject that I call them I call them Mengele doctors because that's what they are. They are Nazi-like doctors. They have no problem with killing human beings. That's what they deserve. They have technically a medical degree, so they are a doctor, technically speaking. So to be correct in the in the wording, that's why I call them doctors, but Mengele. Anyway, when these people are taking a be, are being taken advantage of, so it's very easy to say, well, they're all Satanists. They're all uh, pro-abortion or they're just or even how about this even pro-choice they might even not be pro-choice but they are being told it's not even a life it's not a life so if it's not a life it's just a clump of cells well they don't know better so what would your message be to the women who are afraid they are actively afraid they don't know what they don't know anything better and they're being taken advantage of right absolutely i would say first and foremost i understand you um i was pro-choice up until um, I ended up experiencing pregnancy and seeing my daughter and understanding 
um, the sanctity of her life from that experience. I was 100% pro-choice because, you know, um, if you've never been pregnant, or even if you have, and you've been spoon-fed this propaganda from your schools, from your government, from your healthcare providers, like your entire life, which the women of childbearing age now have been propagandized like this their entire lives, it's it's completely reasonable to believe all of those authorities over some whack job pro-life or Christian that you met outside of an abortion facility. Like, I completely understand that. But the fact of the matter is that when you look at the science, when you when you look at um, the gestation of a, of a child in the womb, when you look at an abortion procedure and what that does to that child, the the poisoning, the injection of poison into the heart of these child, these children, excuse me, the same poison that we use to execute death row inmates, um, potassium chloride, when you look at the ripping of the limbs, when, when you look at the dilation and evacuation procedures, this is clearly murder. Um, and so I would encourage those women, you know, because a lot of the time people say, well, let's look at the facts, let's look at the science. Look at the facts, look at the science, because, you know, that's what we're all here to talk about. We're not here to talk about our feelings, we're not here to talk about emotions, as important as I think it is to be sensitive about our feelings. At the end of the day, that's not really the, the root of the problem. Um, and I would say that pro-lifers need to do a much better job of being sensitive to these women who are afraid, because I, I don't think that they're Satanists. I don't think the vast majority of pro-life, or pro-choice people, excuse me, um, are evil, or that they, you know, genuinely are malevolent beings who want to cause the most harm possible. I think some of them may have heard in their heart, and though they know what an abortion is, um, they still justify it with their own reasoning. And I think that, that there's some evil in that. But I think most of them are just people. Most of them are just people who have uh, been brainwashed by a lot of what the media and the government has told them. Um, and I, I, I would think we need to do a better job of being understanding of that. But I, I would actively encourage those women, you know, I understand your fear. I understand where you're coming from entirely. At the end of the day, though, we need to look at the facts of the situation. And the facts of the situation say that abortion is murder. I will add something. I'll just add some a uh, little bit more on that. What you just said uh, for the women who are afraid, there is resources. The pro-life movement is not just a movement. Oh, well, you are pro-life, and that's where it ends. And we're just uh, all we want is just to outlaw abortion. It's not all we want. We want that, but that's not all. We want much more. We want to be able to help out women who don't have the resources nor the knowledge or anything like that. Uh, like that, there are there are crisis pregnancy. Uh, pregnancy centers that are ready to help you out. They're ready to give you, uh, help you out with diapers, with other kinds of material, food, uh, literature, anything you need. There are places to go. There is a lot more to the pro-life movement than just we are pro-life. We're marching in the street and we're getting rid of these terrible laws. There's much more to that. So if you're afraid at the very least, at least listen to the other side, go to a uh, crisis pregnancy center, see what's, uh, any service that they could offer you first i understand you you're afraid but you could also go to the other side see maybe it were, maybe it would work out for you maybe there is a a chance for you and i want to say this somebody and i know I'm, a lot of people might hate him but i just want to i just want to point this out even him andrew tate 2019 still was pro-abortion pro-choice so-called 2023 i saw a video of him saying that abortion is never the answer that's what he said. That's 2023. I understand. We don't like him. I get that. Uh, although, personally, I think he, he's largely misunderstood, although there's a lot of criticism I have on, on him. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not a fanboy or anything. But what I am is somebody with common sense. And when he does speak something that is common sense, I say, well, it's common sense. It's logical. What he's saying is true. So I don't care that he said it. The fact is that it's true. So Somebody like Andrew Tate, somebody like this guy could be could change his mind from 2019 to 2023 and say, you know what? Abortion is never the answer. 
he has seen something. He has seen stuff. He understands it. He has come. He's. I hope he becomes more pro-life than this. But this is a this is character development on his part. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into that. So we have covered the pro-life subject. So now we're going to go over to to the subject of Israel, and I want to point out that the absolute animals. I don't understand why people think that multiculturalism works. It does not. It is one of the terrible lies that people have accepted. As a matter of fact, it goes so far that even the Jordanians and Egyptians don't want to take in the Palestinians because they understand, because first of the Jordanians, when they took the last time they took in Palestinians, they, it caused a civil war and they had to kill a lot of Palestinians afterwards. So they don't want that happening again. And the, and the Egyptians, they're afraid of Hamas being, they understand there, there are a lot of, people who are just civilians, but they also understand that there will be a lot of Hamas people posing as civilians and they don't want to bring them into Egypt. As a matter of fact, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to go another step further that I think it was Yasser Arafat, 1956 it was, he held a speech where he talked to, he said he was talking to the Muslim Brotherhood and they were calling for him to enact in Egypt a hijab law that women have to go with a hijab. And he, when he said that, I saw the video. It was so funny. He said, he paused there in the entire legislative, I think it was a legislative body in Egypt. They started laughing and he was like, it's like, what are these guys? I mean, listen, I, I mean, I'm Muslim. I, I, uh, I agree with Islam, but you guys are taking this a little bit too serious, a little bit too far. And he, and some guy in the, in the back shouted, let, let them wear one. Anyway, it was, so Egypt has, I just want to add context that we understand that, well, they're all Islam, they're Arabic. Yes, but there's also layers for that. It's not all, well, they're all the same people. They're not. They're, so multiculturalism does not work even within the Muslim communities and Arabic communities. It doesn't, it do, just doesn't work. With that being said, when we have these kinds of beasts in Israel who are perpetrating these terrible crimes and we see that there are certain people here in the United States who are calling for that we let these people in here that's one thing and another thing that and this was in Sydney gas the Jews or the ones who are, are way back in Harvard they are the pro-Palestinian groups I just want to ask you the question does it make any sense to let these people in here I mean it's um are you asking me if I think we should take in Palestinian refugees, I guess is what I'm saying? Yes. Um, yeah, well, I would say... As a Jew, sorry, I just want to put this into context. As a Jew, as somebody, do you think you would be safer or feel safer in a country that has more Muslims, especially uh, one that has elected Hamas? Again, these people, they have elected Hamas. They're pro-Hamas. They might, they're, not all of them are terrorists. This is something we have to understand. But they are pro-Hamas. They are anti-Jew. It's just, that's how it is. That's what they have been taught. They, we have seen the videos of them stabbing Jews. That's a game they play. Or they are given guns to shoot to shoot Israelis. That's what they are being taught as children. So just as a matter, they're not all terrorists, but they are still anti-Jew, anti-the West, anti-American, anti-Israel. So with all of that being said, would, do you think it's a good idea to let in these people? I think that it's impossible to distinguish Palestinian civilians from uh, Hamas cells because um, Hamas has blended themselves in so well with the Palestinian civilian populace as intentionally as a tactic to, tactic to um, distract the IDF. So there, there's no way for our government to distinguish um, Hamas terrorists from Palestinian civilians, as much as I hate to say that. Um, and I think that 
you know, while I do wish that we could take in some of the innocent civilians, the women and children who have been put in the middle of this and who are suffering greatly, absolutely, I wish that we could. But the fact of the matter is that um, the American Jewish populace or the American populace in general, because these people are anti-American, they're not even just anti-Jew, um, are, we're not going to be safe if we let in people like that. Um, and again, I regret to say that as much as I would like to let in those innocent civilians, but there's, there's just no way that our government can distinguish um, Hamas from Palestinian civilian. My argument would actually go that I don't want to bring in any more refugees, period. We should be working maybe on creating some some refugee camp right there between Israel and Egypt. Something there for the for the meanwhile. Meanwhile, we're taking out not we. I don't want to get involved. This is something that certain people disagree with me. A lot of people, especially Jewish people. But I am America first. I don't want to get involved. With that being said, Israel is a big boy. They have a strong military. They have a lot of money. They could bomb the hell out of Gaza. They could take care of themselves. I believe so. So I don't think. And, and furthermore, Israel is not even asking for us to help. We shouldn't be sending any help for them. First of all, they're not asking. Second of all, they're a big boy. They can take care of themselves. They are a powerful military. So I, with that being said as well, I just want to say that Israel obviously should go and kill the terrorists, obviously. As I said on Instagram, they should capture the terrorists and hang them by their balls in public. Show this is what happens when you do when you commit these kinds of crimes because these are not mili these are not soldiers in a in a foreign army. These are terrorists. There's a huge difference here. So I disagree. I would have to say I disagree with the with the notion that we could take in these people especially since the United States has been changing demographically that much that it doesn't see, it doesn't look like the United States anymore. And we, it just, multiculturalism doesn't work. Let these people stay there for the meanwhile. We take out, Israel takes out the terrorists. We put them back into Gaza and we work on some kind of uh, integrate, not integration, uh, assimilation between the Israelis and the Palestinians, which by the way, it worked out not completely. There was a lot of problems, obviously, but it works out better in in the West Bank, somewhat, it has worked out there. So, and it shouldn't end there, but it should continue on on relations on that part. So, I got off a little uh, off a little track here. I just want I want to ask you about: Do you have any family in Israel? Yes. And how? Uh, I'm sure you are in contact with them. How are they? How do they feel about the attacks? How would anyone feel about their house being? I know, mean. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I understand that. No, with I meant to, I meant to ask it as how do they have they taken a part in helping out against the because I've seen a lot of people, especially in Jerusalem, a lot of them have been, and a lot of as a matter of fact, a lot of Orthodox uh, people who are not that much, they're not so friendly with the state of Israel. They've been help, uh, starting to bake food, um, bring over food help out with first aid and all that stuff. So have your, has any family members decided to take on that mantle and start helping out with the, with whatever is possible in the defense? Um, well, I don't have a lot of contact with them right now for obvious reasons. Um, and, they, and they're not very um, orthodox. I know that they have been trying to help out with local civilian relief efforts, um, just in, you know, gathering what food they have to give other people, um, what clothes they have, um, to give to the, you know, Israeli refugees who have had to leave um, southern Israel um, and some of the towns that have been bombarded. Um, it's It's been really brutal. And I would just like to say that, you know, the spirit of the Jewish people has really um, come out 
in this whole conflict. And I think that's the only good thing that's really come out of this is that um, Jews have reunited together as a, as a worldwide family, I think. And especially coming back to Israel, a lot of Jews have um, made Aliyah, actually, which I did not expect. Um, and to go into a war zone, but they've come together to really support each other, um, especially support our Israeli brothers and sisters. And I think that's just a, a really incredible thing. Have you ever went to Israel? I have not, but actually I've been considering going to help with civilian relief efforts, especially in the hospitals. Um, I've had, had one of my friends, Hadassah, has asked me um, if I could, you know, put out word that the hospitals need volunteers. Um, and I've, I've been considering going over. Um, so that's something that may happen in the future. I'm not quite sure yet. What I can recommend, I, I'm not going to recommend whatever you just said. I'm not going to recommend it because I'm not sure if I want to go into a war zone. But if you feel strongly about it, you go ahead and do it. But what I would recommend you definitely, even uh, uh, when this is over, definitely go visit Israel regardless. You should go visit the uh, the wall, the Western Wall. You should go visit where else? Uh, you know where I always I've been there a few times and you know I'm I'm pretty sure you're aware of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai you know you should definitely go there I've been there a few times every time I go there I'm very, I get very excited about uh, just being there being in Israel just it's it's a very unique experience for those who uh, any of you who haven't went there it's a very unique experience maybe not now as a matter of fact maybe now it will be the most unique in your entire lives but I wouldn't recommend it but it definitely when, when this is over, hopefully with a lot of dead terrorists with minimal civilian casualties, go over there. And I'm telling you, telling my listeners, it's a it's one hell of an experience. On that, let's continue on. And we are just, let's say, about just three more questions or so, and we will be out of time. So on Israel, do you... Uh, have, how does it make it? How does it make you, as a Jew, feel the th things that you've seen, the barbarity? Do you? Th what does it make you feel towards those people who have committed it? Do you see them as animals? Do you see them as? Do you have any compassion towards them? Any any? What is your feelings towards them? So to clarify, the violence that I've seen has been. Um have been war crimes, excuse me, such as mass rape of women at a music festival, um, the beheading and burning of the bodies of um, babies in Kfaraza. Um, it has been the slaughter of innocent elderly people at a bus stop. These are these are the crimes that we're talking about. And I don't think that, um, I, I can understand from someone who's uh, a Westerner who's uninformed on the situation, um, who, who hasn't read the news reports, thinking, oh, well, the Palestinian people are probably just, you know, fighting back uh, against their oppressors, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's not what's happening. We're talking about war crimes against innocent civilians. And I don't, I think that these people are acting animalistic. I mean, these are Hamas terrorists um, who are trying to kill Jewish people. Like, let's not mince words here. And they're slaughtering women, children, and the elderly. Um, I think that whatever humane compassion, whatever goodwill I had towards these people, whatever understanding I wanted to have for them, went completely out of the window when I saw photos of, of the burned bodies of dead infants. I would have to agree with you on that. And just to clarify, I, because nowadays there are certain people who want to take everything out of context. So just to clarify, we are talking about the terrorists, not, not the innocent civilians, not the Palestinians. And what do you think about the argument on Israel? that it is Palestinian territory, that it doesn't belong to the Jewish people at all. And I uh, want to put this argument out there as if I'm talking as they are, that we have been living here. Jews have been imported 
from Russia, from Germany, after the world, uh, throughout World War II, and even before, a little bit before, Ashkenazi Jews. They're not Svarti. They don't. They never left, lived here. Why? Why do they think they have a right to come here, become the majority, then take over and create their own state when this should have been our state? And we should have gotten this. The British promised us this. Thank you, British, promising two sides that they will give. Uh, I, don't even ask. They promised the Israelis, then they promised the Arabs, and this is this is the end result. Congratulations, the British Empire. Great job there. This is why we threw your tea in the ocean. Anyway, but but what would you say to that argument? That this is their land. Israelis are not even occupiers. They are inv invaders. And therefore, we have a right to commit any military, so-called military, action to get back our houses and our land. That's a really great question. So um, I would just like to lead with the fact that um, Judea, as it was called at the time, was conquered by Romans. Um, and obviously, uh, Babylonians were there and then um, far later on the Ottoman Empire. And so there have been so many people who have conquered this land. Um, and I would like to point out that Jews were sold into slavery um, and forced out of Israel. So Jews did not leave Israel. It was not ever a choice that the Jewish people made to leave Israel. Um, they were forced out by invaders. Um, and even Jews who went to Europe um, are still indigenous to Judea, to Israel to this day, because that's where Jews are from. Ethnically, genetically, they're from the Levant. Um, Arabs, however, who are called Arabs because they're from Arabia, not Judea, um, are not indigenous to the land. Um, and they have really no indigenous land claim to stand on. Um, they're from places like Syria, um, Egypt. They're, they're not from the Levant. Um, but even if you were to assume they had some kind of land claim, and again, I think this goes back to how Jews are always whatever anti-Semites need us to be. So when Jews didn't have a land, we were the eternal wanderers who were just getting kicked out from country to country and we had no real home. Now that we have Israel, we're colonizers and invaders. I think that's really comical. Um, but, you know, obviously, even if we're talking modern day, the, the Jews that are living in Israel right now um, who came there from other countries, they're mostly Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews who were forced out of the countries they were living in um, by the Arab governments after they had um, a violent Islamist revolution. Like uh, Yemen, for example, Israel had to perform Operation Magic Carpet to rescue Yemenite Jews from being slaughtered by the government for being Jewish. That's a vast majority of Israelis. Because think about it, American Jews who you know are, came from Europe and went to America still live in America. European Jews um, who did not leave because of the Holocaust still live in Europe. Um, and, and then that's because they haven't had a reason to leave. The only Jews that are in Israel are Jews who have nowhere else to go because they were going to be slaughtered in their home countries and still would be if you ask them to return. Why do you think there's no Jews in the Arab countries there used to be thousands of Jews in? It's because the Arabs tried to kill them. And they're trying to do that with the only Jewish state in the entire world besides New Jersey. I have... I have no reason to believe that this is anything but anti-Semitism. And I think that any claim that uh, Jews don't have indigenous land claim, Jews are not indigenous to Israel, is an attempt to erase the Jewish ethnic identity that we've been persecuted over for thousands of years. I would like to add uh, some things on that. First of all, it's we understand that nationalism is bad, right? Nationalism is very bad. Except when it comes to the Palestinians, then nationalism is a very good thing. Absolutely. That's number one. By the way, I'm a nationalist. I, I mean, I don't see nationalism as a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing. It's the only cure to racism because human beings are fundamentally tribal. The only way we destroy all tribal things, religion and all the other things, it's that we're all one nation. Different races, different religions, different ethnicities and all that. We're all one nation. That's how we defeat racism, in my opinion. And what about Hitler? 
the people who, who defeated Hitler, they were all nationalists. The Soviets, they were nationalists. Mother Russia, ever heard that? Also, Hitler, he perverted nationalism, taking any idea to the extreme, perverted to that, then it turns into a problem. So he perverted the idea of nationalism, but nationalism is not a problem. But the people who are very anti-nationalist suddenly become very nationalist when it comes to Palestine. That's number one. Number two, Palestine never existed. As a country, that's another thing that we have to understand. It was always under the influ under so-called influence on under different kinds of empires. And another thing, the British actually did carve up the land. They create an Islamic state and a a Jewish state. Guess which state they created? Jordan. Jordan was part of Palestine. It was one entity. The entire thing was one landmass. So they decided, okay, fine. Israel would be this part and Jordan would be the Islamic part. Then, no, we have to carve up now Israel as well. Okay, fine, we will carve up Israel as well. But then we see what ha happened. No, we're not going to carve up Israel. Now we need the entire landmass. So that's on that on that part. And, as I, and I agree with you on that part, uh, what you just said about trying to erase the Jewish heritage within Israel. They were forced out. They never left because of the, they wanted to. They were multiple times brought into exile multiple times and as a matter of fact there was one i think it was i think it was under hadrian where they completely expelled almost every single jew from the land or it was from jerusalem i think it was from the entire land expelled every single jew and destroyed the the ground within jerusalem just so everybody is clear that this is not anymore a the jewish capital and named it palestia after sorry palestina after the Jewish uh, ancient enemy, the Palestine, that's that's Hebrew, but that is that's where the word Palestine comes from. It is a, if you want to talk about um, an offensive term to use against a specific race, I think Palestine is pretty offensive if you really want to think about it. I mean, they're using a word, an ancient enemy of the Jews, to name it after that land, and now we have these people who have now named themselves Palestinians. Which, by the way, there's another interesting thing on the Palestinian front. That guess what? Before World War One, guess who called themselves Palestinians? It was the Jews. The Jews were the ones calling themselves Palestinians, while the local Arabs called themselves Arabs to distinguish themselves from the Turkic Ottoman Empire. So suddenly, out of nowhere, they said, "No, the Palestinian Jews. No, no, you're not Palestinians anymore. We are the Palestinians." You, wait, you just took an identity away from the Jews. So that's another thing that needs to... that There's so many things that just doesn't make any sense. And we've seen a lot of people in the West. They think they figured it all out. You know, have you seen a certain... Have you seen the deaths in, in Gaza? Yes, we've all seen the deaths. Have you seen the attacks on the Israelis? Yeah, well, well that's justified. Why? Well, that goes around and around in a circle and we never get anywhere. And I've seen certain people, they call themselves Jews for Palestine. I'm like, cool, interesting opinion. Jews for Palestine. Now, I see you standing for Palestine. I would like to like see you stand in Palestine. Let's see how that goes. Uh, yeah, uh, we understand how that would go. I thank you very much for, for taking a part in this conversation and having me interview you. Now, we're up now approaching the end. I would like to ask you, where could... People they want to ask you questions, they want to get involved in pro life, or they want to they want to ask questions about Israel and so on. Where could they find you? Great question. Um, my handle on my Instagram and my Twitter is at pro life Jewess. You can message me there with any of your questions, comments, concerns about this episode or pro life activism, and I'd be happy to get back to you. 
And for those who want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me at Aaron Politodoxy on Twitter or Politodoxy at gmail.com. That is email or Aaron Friedman on Instagram. I thank you very much for listening to this episode. Please, you can share, um, share this episode, the most important thing you can do, and leave five stars. And thank you very much for listening. And remember, my fellow radicals, stay political. <laughs>